0: writing so proficiently I mean there's just so much work Um, the the number of books the number of articles going back years and years you're I guess about five or six years older than me but you've spent that time actually productively Uh, you know unlike me just you know working as a slug uh, making money for a living you've actually had an impact on uh, uh, on the liberty movement and I greatly appreciate that um, one of the things people recognize about uh, uh, Jim Bovard it, it, when they start reading his writing is his unbelievable wit. But, um, but Jim, I appreciate your great beard.
1: <laughs> That's funny. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, most of the comments I get in the beard are not very positive, And it's kind of, uh, you know, um, just uh, uh, just based on a, on a quick glance at, at, at your picture on the website, yours is probably a hell of a lot nicer than mine. I'm sicker anyhow, so... <laughs> Uh I was I was doing a uh well one interview with uh, Glenn Beck a, a few years ago and uh started out the program and um you know he kind of laughs me he, 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 he says I haven't seen a beard like that in a long time <laughs> and uh, so I said yeah well you know the um it was on the advice of my fashion coach that's why I wear it like this <laughs>
0: I think a beard says a lot about a man, and yours says uh, that you're a free man, a free spirit, and a free individual. Oh,
1: oh, I appreciate that. that. You know, that's the most positive interpretation I've heard of that beard in a long time.
0: Your your beard is better than Thoreau's, I'll say that.
1: Well, that's a hell of a low benchmark. <laughs> I mean, his was like, you know, his looked sort of like he was a, uh, um, you know, I don't know, fr- a frustrated Amish or um, <laughs> uh, angry Mennonite. I don't know. Uh, you know, I'm trying to avoid the Quaker references here. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, the, the, well, uh, part of the thing about Thoreau was that he just looks a damn glum. Yeah, in, in, that, in that one, uh, probably the best known photograph, and and it, it's interesting. Uh, Thoreau was a huge inspiration on me. He was one of the uh, he was the first author I read of the so-called classics that really you know snapped my head open and uh, got my eyes wide open as far as well. Wait a minute, there's a lot of BS here in American values. And uh, from there, I went to read a lot of other really um, old fine books. Uh, and uh, and um, uh, I was inspired uh, by him and Emerson, he and Emerson as well. And that was part of what led me to uh, move to Boston back in the late 70s when I was in my early 20s. Uh, but it was interesting, the more time I spent there, the, the kind of more doubts I had about some of Thoreau's messages. So, uh, but that's another story
0: well now your great new book your great new book that you just came out with you just sent me uh the um, Kindle version of it uh yesterday and I jumped into it and I'm really liking it I wish I would have had more time to read it uh, I've done the um the uh, uh, preface and I've done the first chapter and i did the and I jumped ahead to the uh the chapter on let's see where you uh where you moved to to Boston yeah playing left field in Boston that's it yeah 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 now again, what struck me in this is the incredible wit in in your writing, and it's just so easy to read, and it's so fun to read, and um, the clarity with which uh, you remember your youth in those years is really striking. Re- uh, reading about the you know hitchhiking and your adventures there, and the, the, uh, the ladies attempting to stab you.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I never realized that saying no could be so dangerous. <laughs>
0: We, we should talk about your path breaking work at the Harvard Business School as well.
1: Well, you know, that's way up in my resume. <laughs> that, was, uh, that was back when I was living in Boston in early 77, uh, 78. I was there from the great storm in 1978. And uh, it happened, you know, I was, um, um, I think it was almost a foot of snow in one day. And um, just by chance, I was pretty much, I was actually literally down to my last dollar at that point. And then someone told me the Harvard Business School was hiring snow shovels and paying them four bucks an hour. So I hustled over some snow drifts and made it over to their campus and worked 43 hours over the next two days period and actually cut up my rent, cut up my bills, had some extra money. But uh, but, but the thing that was it was best, I was able to put that, um, that gold star on my resume, claiming that I'd done path-breaking work at the Harvard Business School during the great uh, snowstorm, So <laughs> <laughs> um i and uh, you know the the sad thing was that George Bush was no longer there, so I didn't have a chance at whacking with a snow shovel <laughs> but there may have been some other future war criminals on campus at that point whose name has uh, slipped my attention but uh it was it was uh that was actually one of the most fun jobs I had in Boston. I also worked as a giant rabbit uh worked as a santa Claus, uh worked as a um, you know typist uh did all you know I was always hustling.
0: Well, and you have to uh, when you're starting out writing like that and you're hoping to make a living at it there's uh you know there's not a lot of money when you first start out
1: ha! Uh, as opposed to now yeah. <laughs> well good point so. uh no it was uh, you, you know um uh, there was a period where I had to slice the gravy pretty thin uh but it was you know um I, I, at some point I got in the habit of keeping a journal inspired partly by Thoreau and Emerson, and that was why I was able to pull up some of those. You know dialogues from back then. Um, some of the truck drivers were especially uh, memorable. Uh, I don't know how far you've gotten in the uh, Boston chapter. Uh, I don't know if you got this section with the marijuana brownies. Yeah, yeah,
0: that was. A, you, you tell that story. That's pretty good.
1: Well, I was, I was hitchhiking. Uh, I, I hitchhiked up and down between Southwest Virginia and Boston a few, a number of times. And um, one one time when I was going back towards Boston in January, I was I got stuck at this. Every trucker i asked, "Are you heading north?" They'd all say, "Nope, going south." And so, and then there was this one really kind of scrawny-looking guy with an old beat-up hat, and I said, "You're going, uh, you're going where?" He said, "You got any dope?" <laughs> and I said, "Well, I've got some brownies with some real special ingredients." Uh, and he said, "Oh, sure, come on, hop in, hop in." So we, we we hopped in the truck and we're driving about you know 50 miles north. He said, "Well, let's have some of those brownies." Uh, no, no, actually, he didn't say it like it was like well, brownies, and I said, okay, fine, so I so I pulled him out, and I handed him one, he kind of chomped it down real fast, and he's, and he's kind of wrinkled his brow, he said, well, and so, I, I, you know, I could see he was having his doubts, and so I gave him another one, and the third one real quick, and he finished off the other one, and he said, you know, I just can't taste any dope in here, and I said, well, you know, um, well, it's really special ingredient, I didn't mention the special ingredient was peanut butter. You know, and um, I don't know. I don't know if you've ever had hay brownies. That was perhaps fast forward a little bit before your time, but uh, down Southwest Virginia, it was fat, uh, folks. Folks would make these brownies with uh, ditch weed, hmm. really low grade marijuana, and you'd feel like a cow. You're chewing on so much, uh, you know, stuff there, and, and, and it tasted horrible. And it probably didn't give you any high, except for the people that were just so like, you know, I'm having marijuana. I mean, you know, they were.
0: That's a kind word of putting it.
1: Yeah, uh, but the, the there were some other funny details about that
0: truck driver. I don't know how much I don't know what your bounds of levity are for the show. So, <laughs> well, we are on the radio in a couple locations, so as long as we uh, you know keep the uh, the government forces off of our backs, we'll, we'll be okay.
1: Well, there was there was a funny thing about that uh, truck driver. I had, I had difficulty understanding him because. You know it was obvious he was very distressed about something and he was uh, you know and he kept going on and on and, and someone had done him some horrible wrong and and i I tried to sympathize but I couldn't figure out what he was talking about and then finally he was just like someone stole my box and I was thinking well, uh, did what you know was oh at my box you know right around and then I finally figured out he was referring to that, that it was a person, and then I figured that was a female. And then eventually it was like, bitch, It was like, Bitch. It was, Someone stole my bitch. <laughs> and there, were, there was some bimbo he'd picked up in a truck stop who had ridden around with him for, like, I guess, a few weeks and put all of her uh, expenses on her pelvic charge card. and uh, and But uh, at some truck stop, she decided to latch on to some other truck driver. But uh, she may have chose someone who actually spoke clear English. I don't know. <laughs> Um, but it was just—it was funny trying to piece together his story, and it was especially interesting to try to understand uh, to hear his views on women. It was just like, whoa, yeah, well, that's um, that's pretty basic.
0: You begin to understand. I think you mentioned this in the book. You begin to understand uh, where some of the feminists are coming from when they uh, show such hatreds toward men.
1: Well, I didn't say that showed hatred towards <laughs> men, but I can understand why 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 feminists did have some grievances. I mean, there was a there was a line that guy used that just uh, would have knocked me out of my chair if I'd not been in the uh, in, in, in sitting in the truck seat. But it was like,
0: uh, do I go with that, or it's your radio show? <laughs> uh. Well, okay. Let's move on. Let's move yeah. on. Yeah, it's in the book. <laughs> it's in the book, and and I forgot to mention the name of the book. It's "Public Policy Hooligan" by James Bovard, and we'll have links and everything at the notes here today. But anyway, in um, it, uh, you, know, you also—I uh, was going to ask you about uh, oh, about the uh, the apartment when you first moved to. Uh, yeah. So when you when you first moved to a, to Boston, the apartments that you stayed in were not uh, were not so great. <laughs>
1: <laughs> is that how you want to phrase it? No, it was uh, it was a dump. It, it, it was a dump. It was in this uh, beat up old building right next uh, next to a, a trash filled vacant lot next to the Massachusetts Turnpike. It was in a part of Boston. Uh, it was a part of Boston uh, known as Alston, which I guess has gentrified a little bit since then. But back then it was a um, it was a dump. Uh, anyhow, it was part of the neighborhood which I lived in and. I was living on the third floor of the uh, uh, this ramshackle wooden building that would sway very heavily in the wind during winter storms especially it wasn't quite the part where you got seasick but you know you're just kind of wondering is this darn thing gonna fall over tonight um, and the uh, uh, the uh, folks in the first the, on the first floor were a um, uh, rough edge shall we say because they had a bunch of Dobermans. I guess they were drug dealers and the uh, and it was so bad uh, that the mailman would simply stop delivering mail for a week at a time uh, because he was afraid of the uh, dogs that the drug dealers had. Uh, and on the uh, on the floor below me was a guy from Harvard, from South Carolina, who always spoke like he had marbles in his mouth. Uh, but he was a big fan of Quaaludes and whiskey. <laughs> so he was, you know, he was always kind of like uh, one or two sheets to the wind and always kind of ill-tempered. Uh, so it didn't really, you know, it kind of said, hmm, well, maybe I don't need to move further south. <laughs> uh, I, I, was, I was born in Iowa when I was one year old. My family moved to Virginia, so, and I was, raised, I was raised in the mountains outside of a small town uh, that was formerly known as Helltown. Um, and uh, it's now known as Front Royal. But it was, um, it was known for violence. It was uh, rough and tumble. And um, being out in the mountains, the mountains were probably even more violent than the, uh, than the town. Uh, but there was it's an interesting background to come from. Um, and I was, I was trying to come up with a good subtitle for the book, which I did not come up with. And uh, what one possibility would uh, would have been from Helltown to Washington.
0: <laughs> uh, not much of a journey in, in some senses.
1: Well, yeah, but yeah, but, but there's a different dress code in Washington.
0: Yeah, yeah, uh, but uh, well, it's maybe not as honest, though.
1: Oh God, no, no, no! I mean, you know, the, the thing about where I grew up, there were lots of uh, folks who had, had hard scrabble lives, but they're basically good folks. A, a lot of folks had natural smarts to them, mm-hmm. but uh, but the school system was uh, bad. Um, the uh, schooling was the most brain deadening experience of my life. Uh, having to sit there and hear these teachers drone on and on forever, um, just these weary government employee type of monotones, uh, often with uh, mostly women who seem to always be colicky, um, and it wasn't really uh, the uh, whole system seemed blind to the potential of the individuals. Uh, I think that's true of a lot of government schools uh, now as it was then. There's a few places where the schools are you know actually motivate kids. Mm-hmm. And try and tap their potential, but um, basically it was like herding cattle. It was like a twelve-year cattle drive. Yeah, and I had I was kind of blind to my own uh, potential, my own mental potential, uh, for most of that time. It, it wasn't until after I got out of school that there was this great burden left le- uh, lifted from me. And, um, and I'd, uh, I'd enjoyed reading very much when I was uh, young, six, seven, eight years old. But the schools just kind of drubbed that out of me, and it wasn't until after I left
0: high school that that passionate love of reading came back almost instantaneously. Yeah, I found that myself. Uh, I went through phases when I was young, when I, you know, uh, really enjoyed reading, but it did seem like uh, when when summer was on, I would read, but when school would come back, reading just seemed like work.
1: Wow, that's fascinating. Well, I mean, perhaps it was like a badge of servitude.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: And, and, and that's, you know, uh, 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 that's one of the worst things that schools do to kids, is they kids lose the love of reading, because I think a lot of kids will naturally have that. But if, it's, if, if reading is simply, you know, uh, a sign of bowing and curtsying to the rulers, it's like, eh, you know, I don't need to do this stuff.
0: Yeah, that's. I think it's a, a mind poisoning uh, thing that the schools, whether they do it intentionally or not, is not. You know, some some uh, conspiracy theorists might say that it's uh, it's intentionally done to dumb down the public. But whether it's intentional or whether it's just a a, a byproduct, you know, of the bigger inefficiencies of government, uh, n- no matter how you look at it, it's still something that is just devastating to the American public.
1: Yeah, and, and this is also subverting our freedom.
2: Shopping for Christmas. You do. It's a hassle coupled with a burden, mechanically checking off friends, relatives, and co workers from your list. You're probably not even religious, but if you are, is buying your cousin some little made in China piece of plastic really celebrating the birth of your savior? This holiday season, why buy gifts for friends and relatives? Most of them are status anyway. You should send that money to the Freedom Fiends instead. The Freedom Fiends will use your money to help spread education of horizontal liberation throughout the world. If you want to help provide inoculation from indoctrination, go to freedomfiends.com and click on the spinning coin on any post to send your money to the fiends instead. Because buying crap for unappreciative statist relatives won't get your name on the golden floppy disk of redemption. And if you must shop for Christmas, please do it through the Freedom Fiends Amazon link over on the right side of FreedomFiends.com. It won't cost you anything extra, and Amazon will save you the danger of holiday drive-by stabbings at your local mall. Amazon pretty much sells everything you can buy on this earth, except for Guns and Weed. But they do sell the DVD, Guns and Weed, The Road to Freedom. So get that for your gun-hating stoner brother or neocon gun nut dad. They'll thank you for it. That's FreedomFiends.com.
0: Break. This is Ben Stone with BadQuaker.com podcast, and with me today is Jim Bovard, author of uh, oh, my, how many? Uh, five, six, seven books? Nine prior to this one. Wow. Drive um, of Hope over Experience. I had done an article, and this was kind of the reason I invited Jim on the uh, on the podcast. I had done an article back, I think in October, where I had quoted an, an old article that he had done. I believe it was for Cato, but I'm not sure. But it was in reference to um, uh, farm subsidies. And I thought, well, if I'm quoting him and I'm using him as a reference, I probably ought to give the kindness of at least having him to come on and defend himself. Of course I do. I wasn't <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't that was a good lead in. I wasn't disagreeing with you at all. Sure, sure. Um, and it was an older article, so you know, a lot of the actual hard numbers are now outdated. But the concept still stands that when you know, when the government I guess it goes back to a bastiat type thing, when the government steps in for whatever reason, it doesn't matter what its motive, is there are always levels of damage that take place that are either you either can't predict them or nobody bothers to predict them. But uh, in the case of, of food subsidies of any kind, but particularly farm subsidies, uh, every dollar spent just does echoes and echoes of damage around the world, don't they?
1: Yeah, there is there is a domino effect. Uh, there is a better metaphor, but um, it's this. It's the thing. One thing. Um, agriculture was a, um, policy was the subject of my first book. and it was uh, a couple years after I, a few years after I came to DC, I did a story for Reader's Digest uh, on the, entitled "Fiasco on the Farm." In 1983 the uh, Reagan administration decided to boost uh, crop prices by paying farmers not to grow on uh, 77 million acres of farmland. And I, I just had this hunch that it was a bad idea. Um, having been raised in rural America, I was uh, I was not snowed by some of the uh, arcane policy rationales for doing dumb things on the farm, uh, and it was um, uh, Reagan's agriculture policy was was one fiasco after another, as were most of the um, presidents before him after Roosevelt. Um, but it was um, fascinating to see how the, how the how the policy makers would try to justify doing really stupid things. Um, as part of that article, I ended up interviewing John Block, who was the Secretary of Agriculture at that point. And I was, I was trying, and in the interview, I was pushing him on why the federal government was um, had these high crop price supports, which encouraged farmers to grow more crops. At the same time, they were paying farmers to grow less to leave the lands idle. And he had some kind of mumbo jumbo, and and I, I pushed it on again and again, and he just didn't have any good answer, but, uh, but the Feds had their foot on the gas, and on, uh, the, the Feds had their foot on the accelerator and the brake at the same time, and taxpayers were getting run over, coming and going, and it was also greatly inflating fruit prices at the same time, and something which struck me was that so many totally of the liberal politicians, which were always, um, would never miss a chance to parade in front of a TV camera to talk about their love of the poor. A lot of these liberal, most of these liberal politicians are not given a damn about how the food, uh, the agriculture policies boosted the price of milk very sharply, boosted the price of fresh, uh, fresh fruits, um, all kinds of food was far more expensive because of the uh, federal policy.
0: I don't know if you're still following, uh, you know, the current activities in, in that topic or not, but in the last couple of years they have been uh, really, um, you know, playing with the uh, with the uh, dairy industry to the point of where a lot of the smaller dairies just can't stay in business. They're closing down. And, of course, this helps the larger dairies because they swoop in and, you know, uh, take fill the gaps, so to speak.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, federal dairy policy has been a mess since the 1920s. And there are milk marking orders. I think those are still around in some shape or form. Uh, there's all these jiggling on price supports, uh, all these separate milk marking areas. I think that's still the uh, federal policy. Um, and, they, you know, there are so many dairy farmers out there who are intelligent, hardworking, and innovative, and they would find ways to reach and satisfy their customers if it wasn't for all these bloody bureaucrats jumping in between them with one stupid mandate after another.
0: Yeah, I was reading in one uh, spot where they were saying that there are literally uh, in, I believe it was in Missouri, that the government has caves, uh, like miles of caves, uh, uh, or, or perhaps it's uh, where they've mined out, you know, caves for mining, like I can't remember sure. now, but full of uh, butter and cheese that they've stored. That was a case that sometimes in the past, it might
1: be the case now, I'm, I'm not sure, I'm not up to speed on the latest uh, dairy surpluses, but... There are so many different things that the government has done to screw up the food supply, to make food either more expensive or or less plentiful or to have less variety. It's it's similar to what the government did to beer. Um, The government shut down all the breweries in 1918, 1919, and 14, 15 years later when Prohibition finally ended, the uh, the beer makers were cartels. You had a very limited selection of beer, and uh, the beer did not taste nearly as good. A lot of the federal agriculture policies have probably made the food taste worse. We have, uh, we've had some very high tariffs on food imports from places that actually made tastier food, um,
0: like France. Yeah, and I did an article also a while back about uh, the impact of me- in Mexico of the U.S.'s corn uh, policies,
1: because it's just been devastating to the corn farmers in Mexico. Uh, cuz the us has
0: has driven up prices or driven down prices or dumped our our uh, corn there or uh dumping our corn and okay. driving the prices down and uh, making the opportunity for people who want to buy farmland that have the money readily oh, to there we go. to buy it right out from underneath the farmers and i don't know oh. that you know i don't know that that's uh an intentional again it's like the tinfoil hat thing you can't tell but but there it is yeah, it, it, it's there are so many dislocations from agriculture policy.
1: I mean, the uh, cotton farmers in West Africa have been devastated by the by the whipsawing of cotton uh, world cotton prices that have resulted from the U.S. Uh, cotton program. Um, the, the U.S. I think is currently paying a a ten or fifteen million dollars per month to Brazil uh, as a compensation for messing up their access to the cotton market. Um, there's and. Part of what was uh, um, part of what fascinated, fascinated me about agriculture policy in the 1980s was that it was a perfect place to study government gone crazy. Uh, th- there were all these liberal models that assumed that you had an enlightened bureaucracy and uh, politicians were concerned and were responsible, and you know that was all crap when you looked at how the programs actually operated. Yeah, you had one contradiction after another, and they were perpetual, perpetual contradictions and perpetual, uh, you know. It didn't matter because the politicians got the contributions, the bureaucrats kept their jobs, so what's not to
0: like? And it should be, we should be fair in mentioning, too, that
1: bill in Congress that said that the states had to raise their drinking age or else they would not get federal highway funding. Um, total, uh, total blackmail, but uh, didn't quite fit in with Reagan's uh, rhetoric found some weaselly way to justify the law so who made a joke about how dumb the government was, but I was the only person who laughed. And I had a very loud laugh that day, and everybody in the court turned and looked at me. And about two minutes later, I uh, I get this tap on the shoulder. It, it was one of the uh, guards there, and I, and I was evicted from the press box. And it turned out there was some arcane rule that was never enforced that said that the, uh, the journalists had to wear a coat and tie if they were going to the Supreme Court. <laughs> I had a nice business shirt. I was, you know, I was dressed business formal. Or, well, business whatever formal. Bovard formal. How about that? <laughs> uh, but it didn't matter. I was booted out. So, uh, And then uh, later that day I got a call from a Washington Post reporter who ended up uh, writing about it. And he was uh, focusing on the on the, uh, on the fact, well, you know, uh, he, um, he talked to his reporter who had seen me getting booted. And uh, he was saying that, okay, so what sort of shirt were you wearing? And I said, well, it was a nice business shirt. It was a boob business, right? business shirt. Well, what sort of tells more? I said, well, it was from and Taylor, for God's sake, you know. And he, and, and, uh, he had a very nice brush stroke to f- uh, finish his little story. And he said, next time, Bovard, wear Brooks Brothers. <laughs> but, you know, I ain't a Brooks Brothers kind of guy, so... Uh... But uh, that's, that's one of those stories. But, you know, someone called me up after uh, after they read that story in the Post and said, was I embarrassed? And I said, hell no. I mean, it's a stupid rule. It's one of those secret rules that the government pulls out and throws at people who they don't like. And the thing that outraged me was that, was, was that I could not summon the security guards to arrest the Supreme Court justices when they upheld some federal tyranny. Right. As they usually do.
0: Yeah, and if it wouldn't have been the... the, the you know, the dress code. They would have found something else. It would have been, you know, you don't have the right... Uh, um, it probably would have been the beard. Yeah. <laughs> probably would have been the beard. Uh, lousy beard, you know, you're out of here. Um, that no-knock raid issue, you know, I saw somebody, I believe it was on Facebook, that did one of these uh, picture memes where they put... Um, uh, I think they had a picture of a, of a raid taking place, and there was a phrase that said something to the effect of... Um, Uh, that, you know, that the decision is made that it's better to bust into the house, take a chance on killing somebody, essentially, to keep somebody from flushing, you know, half an ounce of marijuana or whatever down the toilet. Yep, there was uh, uh that was the thing that
1: I focused on in the Playboy article. I had one that I'd written before then that the uh, that the the defense attorney who's joke well, I thought it was a joke that I laughed at, he'd actually included that Playboy article in his brief to the Supreme Court, but it was focusing on the issue of flush toilets. And uh people think of Clinton as being a hero of civil liberties, you know, wasn't the case by a country mile. His uh, his administration had a brief in the um uh, uh, in the uh uh, in that case, uh, the, the, uh, there was a rule going in English common law going back to 1603 or 1604 saying the sheriff had to knock and announce his purpose before entering a house when he was uh, executing a search warrant. So this is you know late middle ages almost uh, but, but the Clinton administration stressed that uh, uh, that at the time that rule was adopted in the earlier centuries that various indoor plumbing facilities did not exist. And so, therefore, it was no—it uh, was unfair to make the police knock and announce because you
0: know now there's flush toilets. But also in the in the Middle Ages, it wasn't illegal to, p- to possess a particular plant. Oh, uh, that's a good point.
1: That's an excellent point. Uh, yeah. Well, it's well, it's like you know, government did a lot of bad things, uh, but they but they did not meddle quite as much. I mean, okay, except
0: for theology. Um. Now, your uh, again the the name of your latest book is "Public Policy Hooligan." Uh, of your books uh, that are out, uh, "Lost Rights," uh, "Chain of Freedoms," the "Bush Freedom Betrayal," oh, "Freedom and Chains." Yeah, a little bit of uh, <laughs> reading <laughs> uh, you've back. Been working too hard. <laughs> um, which uh, which would you say is the first one a person should buy? Uh,
1: "Public Policy Hooligan." Public policy hooligan, I, I mean, if someone is interested in specific federal policies, then go for some of the other ones. But, uh, you know, people have told me for years that my books are depressing. And people say, yeah, you know, I could only read 10 pages and I had to put it aside. And I've, I've often wondered what the suicide rate was among my readers. <laughs> Uh, however, this is a different book. This is a fun book. This is uh, you know it's boisterous. It has uh, ten times more comic relief than any other book. And what I do in this is try to walk folks through, walk through walk folks through how I reach some of the values that that I did. Some of my life experiences. Uh, there's uh, in the second chapter it talks about how I was uh, arrested on trumped up armed robbery charges when I was seventeen. Wow. That's when you, uh, you know, that's a chapter which you might have enjoyed if you'd gotten to it, but that's okay, that's okay. No. Uh, but, you know, it was, uh, it was a complete sh- a sham of a situation, but the cops verbally hammered on me for like half the night to sign a false confession. I wasn't stupid enough to do that. Um, There's a lot of other experiences being uh, being evicted by a uh, zoning raid, which I managed to work. work well, there are a, a lot of government rules and things I managed to work my way around. But a lot of my experiences seeing those government penalty flags being thrown, I, I started to say, well, what's the reason for this and what's the reason for that? Um, folks might be interested, too. It was, it was was uh, There was a list of, um, the University of Chicago had a list of great books that they came out with, I guess, in the 1940s, 1950s. And someone gave that to me when I was uh, 18. And that had a huge influence because I was, I, I started reading a lot of philosophy and a lot of, a lot of history i've been interested in history before but mostly military history and that did a lot to um i guess uh, make my head a little bit less dull um i got more in the habit of questioning things and also got more in the habit of trying to figure out what's the rationale for this that, and the other and that was right about the time of watergate and so the, the more i the uh, the more i saw the more i was saying you know this doesn't add up at all um and it seems that it seemed as if the entire political system was turning into a crock, mm. uh, not that it's changed since then, <laughs> uh, but it was there was uh, there was that period of, of intellectual awakening which preceded my interest in politics
0: pretty much now who would you say are uh, some of your I, I can probably fill in this uh, myself for you, but who would you say is some of your top uh, uh, most influential libertarian typewriters
1: Hayek Hayek would be uh, probably uh First and foremost, uh, John Locke, uh, British historian Thomas Macaulay. Um, I've, I, I've enjoyed Milton Friedman's stuff. I mean, Hayek had far more influence. I've, I've enjoyed some of Von Mises. I haven't read as much of him. Um, I, I enjoyed Ayn Rand's essays a lot. I um, actually went to a... Uh, saw her at the Ford Hall Forum in Boston in 1978. Uh, there was a woman I met there... Um, she and I went out for pizza a time or two, and she was, um, you know, she was an interesting lady, kind of tall and gaunt in circles under her eyes, unusual for the mid-20s. And uh, she was saying that, uh, she was talking about how much she loved Ayn Rand, and she was saying that almost nothing is more important than freedom. And I I said, "Uh, almost? And she said, yeah, well, she thought that the, the, the government should somehow make it so that people could not have a baby unless they had a government license.
0: Only one slight restriction.
1: Yeah, and, and I said, well, you know, that's kind of a big thing. And, and her eyes glared, and she says, I work in a music box store. You have no idea how bad kids can be. <laughs> okay, now
0: I'm sympathetic for her.
1: All right, well, yeah, but it was kind of like, okay, well, that's uh, well, we'll just move along on that topic. How about that? You know, great pizza, isn't it? So, uh, yeah, she was fervent was on that, so I mean, she'd... You know, don't know what
0: happened to her, but hopefully, it all worked out well. So, should this book be called the Public Policy Hooligan, or should it be called the Many Loves of James of James Bovard? <laughs> no, 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 no. It's it's not many loves. It's, <laughs> it's a hooligan book. Most, you know, most of it's about my,
1: you know, uh, barking at the government, hassling the government. You know, the investigations and stuff like that. Um, there were some, you know, there were some people who I met and got to know early on that helped shape my influence, uh, some of the women I knew
0: certainly had some influence, especially when they tried to stab me. <laughs>
1: uh,
0: that's a good point to, uh, uh, to pause and save yeah. this file and yeah. throw in a commercial, and we'll, uh, we'll tease with some more of that uh, information when we come back from this break. Did you know author Terran P. Lupo has a new novel out called One Nation Under Blood? When a rejuvenative blood technology is developed that pits the young against the old, the government must take firm steps to address the war of supply and demand brewing across generational lines. Blood is not the only thing bought and sold in this dystopian tale of technology, economics, and independence. Vampires are now very real, but we never expected them to wear our grandmother's best Sunday dress. The Bad Quaker staff has discovered how easy it is to get everything you need for the holidays at Amazon. Everything from the coolest decorations to hangover remedies, and everything from the latest movies and music to poop stain remover. If you follow the Amazon link at badquaker.com, Amazon will give badquaker.com a tiny portion of the purchase. It won't cost you any extra, but you will be supporting this podcast. Thank you. BadQuaker.com uses HostGator as our web hosting service. It was fast and easy to get set up, and the support we receive is top-notch. They have helpful and friendly 24-7, 365, live technical support, and a 99.9% uptime guarantee, and they have some of the best prices in the business. If you have a website, or if you want to have a website, check them out by going to BadQuaker.com, and click on the button for host HostGator. And thank you very much for supporting BadQuaker.com. dot com. Okay, and I'm back with Jim Bovard on Bad Quaker podcast, and we teased a little bit with some uh, with some stabbings and some violence. So, Jim, um, tell me about the uh, the many loves of Jim Bovard.
1: <laughs> no, 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 no. It's not many loves. It's just it's just, it's just people who I knew who helped shape my view on life and all that. You know, it's just you know. Uh, which what story do you want?
0: Well, uh, let's see. We uh, it, when we were off uh, microphone, you began a story about a particular situation. I believe in Boston.
1: Okay. Yeah. Well, there was. Um, well, let's see. There was. Oh, um, it, it was a uh, part of what was fun about living in Boston was just getting to know an entirely different group of people. Because when I lived in Blacksburg, which was a college town, a lot of very very sharp folks there the 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 um, the mental fire firepower there tends to be more in the sciences and technology and engineering, which is I'm, I'm glad folks like that are sharp that way. But my interest was more in philosophy and liberal arts and history, and so there's a, a different um, genre of women, I guess. Uh, but uh, there was one woman I met at the uh, Boston. Well, actually, uh, you know, since we, I'll I'll, I'll head back to the. Uh, uh, case we were talking about during the break, there was a woman I dated who was, uh, she was an ex- uh, an, ex- uh, an aspiring writer like me, um, a very sweet girl, and she was, uh, stopped by the visitor midday one day, and then uh, there was a knock on her front door, and she goes racing out to answer it, and there's this, uh, uh, some very young, uh, uh, very squeaky voice says, hi, uh, Zelda sent me, okay, sure, come on in, so I just kind of uh, watch her, the two of them go racing down the hall of the kitchen, and kind of wandered in there, and uh, my friend Melanie pulled out this huge block of marijuana from the freezer and just kind of pulled out, a, um, uh, pulled out. I, I guess, a knife where I shaved off a huge bunch and got the scales, and they were just, all the cash was flying back and forth. And it just seemed like it was a little bit on the casual side. Uh, she was a nice lady, but I was like, you know, there's going to be a bust here any time. So, <laughs> so I kind of distanced a little bit and maintained a friendship there. But um, one thing I did was uh, she was... Um, she wasn't sure what to do with her proceeds, and so I was saying, you know, I've been watching the price of gold. It's going to go up, so uh, what I'm going to do is invest in gold, and we can you know, keep track of that, and then split the proceeds, which which I did. And which and So she and I both did very well out of that, but uh, if I did the same thing nowadays, uh, the Feds could come in and seize all my assets.
0: Yeah, yeah, even though you had you even if you had nothing whatsoever to do with the actual drug dealing,
1: absolutely. And the, the the asset forfeiture laws were something which just absolutely mortified me. As soon as I heard about them, I was barking at that moon for a lot in the 1990s. Um, part of uh, part of uh, um, I first did marijuana when I was uh, I guess 15. Uh, I used it sporadically. Um, Never never on a daily basis, but um, one of the jobs I had was w- with the highway department. One of the things that uh, we'd do once or twice a week with that is I'd be working w- um, on, along the roadside with a uh, gang of convicts from a nearby uh, state penitentiary. And I got to know some of those guys. and there was one uh, really real huge hulk of a guy, white guy who was uh, sent to prison because he beat hell out of his uh, girlfriend's husband. And he was the kind of person, yeah, this guy should be in prison. I'm glad they've got presents. Just talking to this guy, he was kind of a weird look in his eye. you just kind of like, okay, just, you know, always be very nice with him, you know. But then there was this other guy, this uh, black guy, probably mid-20s from Richmond, who always wore a tight bandana around his head before it was fashionable, and I you know, used to, shoot, he used to shoot, the, shoot the bull with him. and. He would. Uh, he told me that uh, yeah, that he was a drug dealer. He was guilty of that. But but the person that the feds or the or the government used to nail him at his trial was someone he'd never seen before, and who was there testifying that he'd bought drugs from this guy. And he was convinced the justice system was a total crock, and he was right. Hmm. There were cases later I wrote about it when the DEA would use confidential informants to fabricate these
0: stories to nail a suspected drug dealers. I think that's a mistake. A lot of people, mostly—well, maybe that's prejudice on my part. I, I, I imagine mostly people on the right, uh, tending towards the right side of politics, have a have the a misunderstanding that if someone's accused, you know, oh well, they must be guilty. The, the system wouldn't just randomly pick out people, and but but that's not the case. I mean, there's a lot of people like what you were talking about there with the uh, the attempt to get you to uh, to um, to admit to something you hadn't done—that's—it's not new, and it is quite prevalent.
1: Yeah, and there's—I mean, there's a, a, a lot of conservatives have a rosy-eyed, a rose, rosy-colored uh, view of law enforcement uh, that, that assume that the police are your friend. It was one of the good things about the Clinton era was it seemed like a lot of conservatives woke up to the notion that federal agencies like the FBI uh, could also be out there killing innocent people, be it Waco or Ruby Ridge or elsewhere. And there seemed to be a real fundamental backlash, but that certainly faded after uh, Clinton left office, and even more so after 9-11. Yeah, um, very surprisingly how short the memory of uh, so many people in the public is. That's a very nice way of putting it. <laughs> it's, you know, it's nice to be able to say that for radio and avoid all profanity.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we do have limitations. <laughs>
1: Well, thank God the FCC is riding, uh, uh, riding shotgun on
0: this broadcast. Yeah, um, they, uh, they're, they're going to preserve the delicate ears of the public. Well, I'm, you know, I think
1: if people got delicate ears, they probably won't turn into your show.
0: <laughs> I hope you're right. Oh, my. So now, um, let's see, we've covered uh, food at uh, farm subsidies, we've covered uh, women with tendencies to. Did we talk about the women with tendencies to stab? <laughs> you know, I've been trying to shirk that. You
1: know, I mean, three or four times this broadcast, i have kind of said, "Well, yeah, here's something else we should talk about." You know, <laughs> uh, you know, if you want to talk about that, we can talk about. It. Well, you know, it's, you know, that probably works better in the um, better in print. I don't know. Um, Maybe that's
0: just a really good teaser for the book that the, the at what.
1: I, well, have known for almost 30 years, and she had not heard any of these, uh, almost any of these stories in the book, and I, so I was just kind of giving her a few thumbnails over dinner, and, and she just kind of looked more and more puzzled, she said, you know, it sounds like you have a history of being attracted to angry women, <laughs> and I said, well, no, that's not the case. It's just that the angry women made much better stories. <laughs> I mean, it's just kind of like, okay, nice to old to dinner, you know, okay, you know, okay, bye. It it, um, it, it kind of carves itself in your memory. <laughs> Events like that do stick with you. That's true. I mean, it's the uh, yes, that's true. Let's just, I'm,
0: I'm, I'm trying to keep this high tone. I'm struggling. I'm struggling. Well, let's take this in a different direction altogether. Um, you know, looking at.
1: A lot of folks I, uh, I know who think their roof is going to fall in any day now. I don't think that's going to happen. Um, I started to pay attention to economics and finance uh, in the early 70s, and uh, there were a lot of really good newsletters back then that were, that were predicting when Nixon took the nation off the gold standard, which was a horrible crime, mm-hmm. one, one of his greatest crimes among many. Uh, that the economy would fall apart. And I've heard a lot of similar predictions as a result of QE1, QE2, QE3. Um, it's amazing how much damage the government can do to the economy, and yet things don't fall apart. Things seem like they might be falling apart in late 2008, early 2009, but they don't seem to have fallen apart as far as I can tell. Uh, um, it's... <laughs> I hate to see the uh, politicians seizing more power, and, and I, I hate to see the Government throwing more wrenches into private lives. Short term, I don't think things are going to get that much worse. Long term, it's not sustainable. But hell, it's not been sustainable since the 1970s. Uh, there was uh, there was a line I came across in uh, one of the um, books I read, uh, which I made notes from. I was you know put together public policy hooligan. And it was uh, someone in uh, 1974, I was reading that, when everything, when the crap was really hitting the fan. And someone had said that, you know, for 30 years this uh, this nation has been uh, pursuing policies that were uh, unsustainable, and now the chickens are coming home to roost. Well, and maybe he was right. The policies are not sustainable, but that doesn't mean that they're going to, you know, not be sustained for another 10 or 20 or 40 years. So... Um, I, you know, I would love to see, uh, see the, the government move in the direction, the, the economic policy move in the direction that Ron Paul sketched out. I was a, I've been a huge Ron Paul supporter. Um, I don't think it's going to happen anytime in the next few weeks.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: but don't know. Don't know. It just, it, 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 it's sad that people have to spend so much of their time and energy defending themselves against the government. And it's not just civil liberties, it's also finances, and economy. The the, uh, the, uh, the the whole idea that you'd have the Federal Reserve intentionally punishing American savers is such an obscenity, and yet it barely makes the news.
0: Yeah, and you mentioned there with Nixon, you know, a few of us in, in, libertarian-tending people know about Nixon and the gold window and uh and that's, August 15th, 1971, I think that was. Yeah, when that happened, my dad um, decided that it was time we were living in San Jose, California, and he had a good, steady, you know, everyday job. At a, at a Ford dealership, and he said, you know what, we've got to get back, we've we got to get to Kentucky. And he moved oh, the whole family, lock, lock, stock, and barrel, moved us to a farm in Kentucky because he was convinced the economy was going to go right down the toilet and do it very, very quickly.
1: And do you think he made the right decision? Well, in ways he did because he got me out of California at a very critical
0: moment in time. Okay. Uh, you know, early 70s, that was not the, maybe the Bay Area was not the greatest place to be. But uh, and I got a chance for me, you know, selfishly speaking, I got a chance to to experience Appalachia and and the the wonders of Appalachia. Oh, it's
1: so glorious!
0: It's just so beautiful. That's something in your book there where you were talking in the first chapter about uh, your childhood on the uh, on the cattle ranch there that was really warming my heart. Oh, really? Okay, good. I mean, I was I I was trying to convey some of the spirit of that because uh,
1: I was raised at a uh, on a Beef Kettle Research Station that was uh, 4,000 acres, six square miles. uh, And it was on the, um, basically in the the first mountains across from the start of the National Park, Skyline Drive. And uh, so many many glorious views, uh, just a wonderful place to roam. Um, Not the most mental stimulation, but, you know, eh, you know, I could find
0: that later, I reckon. (laughs) But it's great for a kid, anyway. I don't know how it is for an adult, but...
1: Um, yeah, well, I,
0: I mean, if, if someone
1: has a decent job in a satisfying situation, uh, I've heard there's a lot of meth labs in that area now,
0: which is unfortunate. Uh, but it's probably worked out well for the dentist. <laughs> oh, I, I, uh, I talked in a circle and lost my train of thought. I was going to – oops, we have dogs barking in the background. I was going to um, – Mentioned that a lot of people think of Nixon, they immediately think of uh, either his war crimes or they think of you know Watergate. Uh-huh. But so many of us uh, with libertarian tilt, we immediately go to that closing of the gold window as the really uh, the practically demonic thing that he did to the to America. Yeah,
1: and at the same time that he closed the gold window, he imposed wage and price controls. Yeah, um, and I've, I've got a section in there. I was interested in coins. Uh, old coins and then later rare coins. And I was wheeling and dealing in high school and a little bit before. And uh, there was something very symbolic about uh, that closing of the gold window. And I I was reading some of the coin newspapers and coin magazines back then. They were enraged by it. And I think I probably soaked up some of their anger and fervor. It's kind of like, you know, what the hell is the government doing? Uh, Coins were one of the items that were not controlling the prices. So you had a lot of the old rare coins really spike in value, uh, especially as the fear of inflation kicked up, justifiably, because mm. I think the inflation was like 12% in 1974. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that just kind of sowed the seeds of uh,
0: seeing, seeing the government as both incompetent and devious. Yeah, in, in that way, I hate to say this, but... In that way, Nixon almost served a purpose to liberty by, by opening a little bit of a window as to how much damage government can really do.
1: Well, I hope you're right, but I mean, I think back four years ago, I was I was hearing some liberals say... George W. Bush had served the same purpose by making people aware that the government's got far too much power and you can't trust it to wiretap and torture and keep all these secrets.
0: And Yeah, okay, so what's different? <laughs> and then Obama comes in and does it, and they give him a peace prize.
1: Oh, they give him a peace prize, and now there's this stupid movie out that glorifies torture. And, uh, oh, my God, it's just, I mean, it's... It, it's um. I was trying to have a a semblance of a not-too-unhappy ending in this book, which is why the narrative ends at the end of the Clinton administration, uh, because in a lot of ways things got so much worse after that. Yeah, and uh,
0: you know, you can say, well, so many people have just said, well, it's 9-11, it's 9-11, it's all, it's 9-11. But I really look at that more as an excuse. It was just the... the, uh, the thing that happened at the time that they could take advantage of and ratchet us one more time.
2: Yeah, I mean, it, it
1: was somewhat, somewhat yes, um, I'm trying to avoid it, uh, 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 incendiary historic analogies here. Um, and there was so much of the stuff that was put in place was on the shelf, waiting to go, like most of the Patriot Act. And and to see the, see the direction the Clinton administration was going in in its final years, very dark, very heavy-handed, um, and yet, there was almost there was so little backlash uh, against that by Republicans. It, it was a GOP that sabotaged asset forfeiture reform, along with Eric Holder. Uh, it was a GOP that sabotaged the investigation of Waco. Um, so many things were just uh, thrown out the window, and yet so many people had this had this hope that George W. would be would uh, save our national honor by not having sex in the Oval Office with an intern.
0: And and like. Like any of that can even compare to things like Waco and and the other, it's just amazing. Yeah,
1: and it, it just you know I had hoped that Waco and Ruby Ridge would be the most important public education lessons of the 1990s, but but they definitely were not. There was the there were so many things which came out that showed the government had lied so often, and the government was guilty of horrendous abuses. And yet it, it basically got brushed under the rug. Uh, there were there were a few risks that were slapped. And that was about it. And the uh, FBI marched merrily on to ever bigger budgets. And I'm amazed at how many people today uh, don't really have a clear remembering of, of that stuff, of all that went on during that time frame. Yeah, it's, um, I, I, I did a book in 2000 called Feeling Your Pain The Explosion and Abuse of Government Power in the Clinton Gore Years, partly because I wanted to kind of um, to avoid having a lot of those details vanish in the memory hole because it wasn't just uh, some personal scandals of Bill Clinton. It wasn't just Whitewater and this, that, and the other, and the intern. It was systemic. And I had thought that one of the clearest lessons that Clinton would have shown was that the government's profoundly untrustworthy. I had a line of conclusion, which which some book reviewers hated, that Clinton expanded and exploited the dictatorial power of the U.S. presidency. And I'd hoped that 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 would be one of the things that caused the backlash uh, after his reign ended. But instead, it just became a catapult catapult to
0: ever more power grabs. Wow, you could take that phrase and use it for Clinton, and then just dust it off and use it for Bush, and then just dust it off and use it for the uh, for the current administration. It just it gets worse and worse.
1: Yeah, uh, it has gotten worse and worse. I mean, in some ways, Obama is not as odious uh, as Cheney, um, <laughs> but, but but it's unfortunate that the that, that the liberals, you know, who made some very nice speeches and from 2003 onwards, have basically set on their hands or just kind of like you know, um, um, added their knife to the back of the Bill of Rights.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I really appreciate you coming on the show with me, Jim, and it's been a real pleasure to talk to you. I've had a lot of fun with the podcast.
1: Uh, ben, thanks for having me on. It was fun to bounce these ideas around, and I hope I wasn't too shy about my uh, dire past. My, <laughs> uh, no, no, my dastardly past. You know, I'll have to edit that
0: one out. There we go. There we go. Thanks a lot, Jim, for coming on the show. And folks, for um, uh, for any of the information we're talking about today, links to the book, um or for links to, what else was it I talked about? Oh, yeah, um, Will Coley. Uh, be sure and get over to badquaker.com and hit those links and check out uh, Jim's book and check out check out the, uh, the coverage of Will Coley from uh, Muslims for Liberty. And as always, be sure and check back in with the Bad Quaker po- podcast where liberty is our mission. Thanks a lot, folks. Goodbye.